Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I know I have been MIA for the last couple of weeks, but sometimes the old Bo needs a little vacation itself. And I hope everyone had great holidays, and I want to say Happy New Year to you. And I hope this year is a lot better to you than what last year was. Because between you and me, last year is what this show is all about. Black history. So we must keep marching on. Because our work is far from over. And until our children and grandchildren have pride in who they are and know where we came from, we that are woke must keep plugging the hole. We must keep denying the lies and remembering the atrocities. We as a people lost a lot of good friends last year and we'll lose more this year. But that's just the cycle of life. We were not meant to be here forever. Just a niche in time. That's all we are. So I must say, it's awful good to be back in front of this mic. And I hope you have missed me as much as I have missed you. So let's get 2024 started by slipping into darkness and me telling you a few first. I have a white friend, and we're always going back and forth with each other, and he's always telling me, oh, yeah, but Black has taken over the NBA, and and blacks have taken over heavyweight boxing and the majority of the NFL, but we still have golf and we still have tennis and we still have hockey. And I said, oops, wait a minute. Let me tell you a few things about that game called hockey that you think belongs to you. And picture in your mind what hockey looked like at the turn of the 20th century. And what do you see? Set your mental image in Canada. Because the game hasn't spread much below the border. And you probably imagine a less formal game played on ponds and small rinks and not in packed arenas where the sticks were wooden and the players padless and without helmets. The sport is slower and more methodical, and any contact is incidental. And when you picture organized hockey's earliest players, they're probably white. But a group of black Canadian intellects and churchmen at this time looked at the sport and saw the same thing and decided that Simply because things were the way they were, that wasn't how they had to be. So they started their own league, the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes, which existed just long enough to invent much of what's best about the modern game. 
before it was killed off by white business interests. As a result of its short lifespan, the CHL doesn't get prominent place in most tellings of hockey stories, but its legacy is undeniable. You see, the Canada of the late 19th century had a much smaller black population than it does now, 21,000 as of 1881, census nearly 2.2 million in 2016, after which the loosening of immigration restrictions in the 1960s paved the way for more Caribbeans and Africans to call Canada home. Because before that, the bulk of the black population in Canada came from the United States, and many were formerly enslaved persons who found refuge in British Canada which had outlawed slavery decades before the United States. But just because Canadian authorities welcomed those who had escaped bondage did not mean they viewed them as equals. And it wasn't out of altruism that British authorities in Canada first began offering sanctuary. There was a certain level of opportunism behind the invitation, a desire both to attract cheap labor and to warm America's economy. Sometimes these very refugees were given land grants, but not in the fertile plains of Saskatchewan, nor the industrial heartland in Ontario. Instead, they were often forced to settle in the less productive maritime provinces of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and the Prince Edward Island. Halifax, the largest city in the region, became a population and cultural center for black Canadians. The Maritimes, while not offering particularly good farmland, proved to be fertile ground for a bulging intellectual, a group of people who sought equality for black people, not just in Canada, but in the whole of the British Empire. Their goals went beyond legal equity, instead seeking a more tangible social respect from their new countrymen. Hockey was seen by these organizers as a way to prove and thus obtain black equality. After all, then as much as now, the idea of hockey as a white man's sport was pervasive. So in 1895, they formed the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes, the world's first all-black ice hockey league. The most famous of these founders was a Trinidadian teacher named Henry Sylvester Williams. He came to Halifax to study law and quickly became an activist in local politics. His advocacy eventually had him run out of Canada by the white establishment. Later in his life, he would move to England where he became one of the first persons of African descent to hold elected office as well as organizing the first Pan-African Conference. The other founders were businessman James Kinney, Pastor James Borden, and attorney James Johnson. These men shared several values. Among them 
an admiration for American civil rights leader Booker T. Washington. It was Washington's belief that segregation afforded those of African descent an opportunity to prove black excellence, and this philosophy was a major influence in the creation of the CHL. What better way to speak to Canadians in a language they understood than on ice? You see, all the founders were Baptists, and their faith influenced the way they structured the league. Each team was to be affiliated with a different congregation, which revels another purpose of the league, to get young men to come to church. The common saying among historians is that the CHL had no rules except for the Bible. Skaters had no bones about slamming into each other, which would have looked strange to hockey fans back then. You see, up until this point, hockey had been a slow and calculated game, one that prioritized keeping possession of the puck. The CHL, on the other hand, embraced hockey's potential as a contact sport. Particularly, and at least at first, this may have been because many of the players simply weren't very good at hockey. And some were experienced skaters and many of them elite athletes. Jack Mills, captain of the West End Rangers, once held a speed skating record of 18 miles in 50 minutes. But by and large, they were baseball players who viewed hockey as a way to stay employed and in shape over the winter. And while they played informal hockey games before, this was their first taste of professional matches. Many of them quickly developed a love for the game, and it wasn't long before they began to master it. Charter member teams of the CHL played numerous exhibitions against established white teams, and occasionally the CHL would win. The typical response from the all-white teams was a vow never to play them again. With fewer rules than the established leagues of the time and operating outside of any tradition of how hockey was supposed to look, the CHL was a place players could experiment. Eddie Martin of the Halifax was the first hockey player to ever perform a slap shot, reproposing his baseball swing for the ice. His teammate, George Tolliver, invented the flying body check and was still playing into his 40s. Henry Franklin may have been the first person to play the goalkeeper position as we know it today, not remaining on his skates, but instead squatting and lunging. He was three feet and six inches tall. Most of the CHL's teams came from Halifax or nearby towns like Afraville or New Glasgow. They tended to play a short year as they were unable to get ice time until after the white teams had finished their season. And this often resulted in something more like a tournament than a true league schedule. More than 12 teams played in the league at various points, but it wasn't always clear from the records which teams participated in any particular season. 
However, what we do know is that nine out of the first 12 championships were won by the powerhouse Eurekas of Halifax. It's difficult to understand how fully the league fell out of the public consciousness. Even descendants of the CHL players have been surprised to learn how influential their forefathers were in developing of Canada's national sport. Much easier to figure out is why the league went out of business. Most sports league failures can be attributed to some combination of managerial incompetence, over-expansions, or waning public interest. The CHL had none of these issues. A decade after its existence, it was still selling out arenas all across Nova Scotia with a popular, unique brand of fast-paced and action-packed hockey. No, what killed the league was politics. You see, one of the most important locations in Black Canadian history is a place called Africville on the outskirts of Halifax. It is a home of generations of working class Black Canadians who found themselves priced out and unwelcome in the city they helped to build. In 1905, the city of Halifax decided that it needed a new railroad. Local business leaders and politicians were enthusiastic for the project and hailed it as an opportunity for progress and prosperity in their city, and they wanted to lay tracks right down the middle of Africville. By this time, league co-founder James Kinney was more or less acting as commissioner of the CHL. He had also amassed some political power, which he used to successfully fight against an attempt at segregating schools in Halifax. He threw his entire weight behind stopping the railroads. He demanded that the people of Africville had the right to their land, to their homes, to a say of what went on in their patch of the world. But Kenny couldn't stop a moving train. The citizens of Africville couldn't prove their rights to the land in court, with the land grants in many cases going back more than a century and no paperwork to back it up. The houses came down, the tracks were laid, and before the wounds could even heal, a belching steam engine chugged through the middle of the town as a reminder that progress doesn't benefit everyone. In response to Kenny and other local black leaders' attempt to derail their passion product, Nova Scotian businessmen went scorching earth on the CHL. They refused to have anything more to do with the league, refusing to allow any mention of it in newspapers and banning its teams from renting rinks. The league tried to soldier on, playing games out on rural frozen ponds for a time, but the black lister proved a death blow, reducing the CHL to little more than just another rec league, playing matches far away from their once adoring crowds in the cities that had housed them. It's not entirely clear 
when the last CHL game was played, though the last mention of the original incarnation appears just before the outbreak of World War I. There were at least two attempts at reviving the league in the ensuing decades, but neither came close to the original in ingenuity or popularity. The CHL's founders may have been only partially right when they believed the league could be a showcase for black excellence, and they were correct in that it would force white people to pay attention. What they did not foresee was white teams refusing to share the ice with superior black teams or white business leaders systematically starving the league out of existence when its leaders dare to stick up for their community or a larger hockey world happily cannibalizing the CHL's innovations then co-signing it to the forgotten dustbin of history. Black excellence was largely viewed, it turned out, as a threat You can decide for yourself if that's changed in the last hundred years. My friends, the injustice done in Arkville wouldn't be the last. In the 1960s, the entire population of the town was forcefully removed and their homes demolished to make way for industrial development. More displacement in the name of progress. In 2010, the city of Halifax issued an apology. To this day, the Arkville Museum keeps alive the community's memory. The Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes has no such shrine. How many times have we read or heard these stories, my friends? Wherever whiteness is in the majority, the minorities suffer. And it goes way back. Not only American whites and blacks, but American whites and Chinese, and Mexican, and Japanese, and indigenous people, wherever they are in majority, they will run and rough rod over us at every chance they get. We have set the pace in every sport that we have ventured off into. Football was never football until blacks got into it. Basketball wasn't the game that it is today until blacks got into it. But yet I can remember at the Super Bowl in New Orleans in the 1960s, blacks and whites could, on the same team, couldn't stay in the same hotel. And that didn't change until the black players refused to play. And when the businessmen of the NFL thought that they were going to lose money, things changed. It's like I have always said, the best way to end this war is through the pocketbooks. They do not care about paying us $40 million, but they only care when we stop them from making $40 billion. Well, friends, that music tells me that it's once more time for me to get out of here. But I got to tell you, it has been so great getting back to you today that I cannot wait until I can turn this mic on again. 
But before I go, you know I've got a message for you. You are not a product of your circumstances. You are a product of your decisions. Have a great day, my friends. Until next time, it has been my honor. Peace to my ancestors and my elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day.